Want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction, Canada Sportsbook. Football is back. Baseball playoffs happening right now. And look at that. Hockey season starts this week. You can bet pregame, live in play, or on one of, your, one of the many prop bets made for Canadians by Canadians. Sports Interaction makes it easy to deposit, play, and cash out. Join now to see all that sports betting has to offer. Head to sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. That's sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. Ontario only, 19 plus. Please play responsibly. This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook. Our guest this week has a new book out called Conflicted Scarves, An Average Player's Journey to the NHL. He was one of my first clients when I entered the agent business back in 1996. When he was playing in the OHL, with the Kingston Frontenacs, and I think we'll tell that story. He was drafted in the fourth round, 85th overall by the Washington Capitals in the 1996 NHL draft. He was a key player on the Ottawa 67s team that won the 1999 Memorial Cup, where he was the leading scorer in the tournament. His new book details his hockey journey with a lot of self-reflection along the way, uh, including disturbing accounts of brutal hazing rituals, 10 to 15 concussions, two of which resulted in him being hospitalized with brain bleeds, struggles with mental health and depression, getting arrested for assault with a deadly weapon, and much more. Let's give a big welcome to my one of my first clients, Justin Davis. Yes. <laughs> well, it's quite the book you got coming here. Yeah, well, I, I was just thinking, who would have thought, Alan, all these years later, we'd actually be mentioning the assault with a deadly weapon and we could actually laugh about it. <laughs> <laughs> Your tone wasn't a laugh when I had to call you. <laughs> well, at some I, I point today, you, you guys are going to have to explain yeah. that story because yeah. I don't know that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was one of the memorable calls I've had in my career. <laughs> But uh, Justin, it's so great to see you. See you again. Me too. Um, it's amazing to hear that you're, you know, married with three kids, and uh, and and living a, a happy, productive life. And you've got this incredible new book out that I've actually read twice. <laughs> uh, I read it a, a second time in the last week, and I I read it when. Uh, you originally had sent me a, a draft copy before it had gone to publishing. And uh, I think a great place to start is, why don't you tell us a little bit about how we first met and how we started working together? Yeah, hockey's funny. I, I had, I've had, you're my third agent and uh, when things are going well, uh, people return your calls and and they get back to you quickly. And I was kind of ignored. Uh, the agent I had at that time was, had some uh, premier NHL players. And uh, and I remember seeing you, you're in the old uh, Kingston Gardens and you had a suit on and I believe cowboy boots with the suit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, lean, All right. Yeah. Leaning against the, the pop machines and he made his way over and we talked. And then the thing with Alan was he wasn't overbearing. He just kept showing up. And I was like, this guy's been to three or four of my last couple of games. And uh, so we got to talking and 
I went on uh, what they call in the hockey world a bit of a heater and <laughs> I just, I kept scoring. And uh, Alan was great. There was a thing back then, remember, uh, I'm away from hockey, but the red line report. And I think Alan basically bullied that guy into writing about me nonstop. I remember I got a fight in North Bay and Alan would call me and say, I talked to him, uh, your fight's going to be in there. That's fantastic. And <laughs> uh, Yeah, we met. And you know what? He, I think like you see with a lot of the stuff is that he cared. He was the first one that cared and treated like a human and and promoted me. So uh, yeah, we went forward there and I believe I was one of his uh, first two clients, probably one, two or three. And uh, and the rest is history. I would have liked to made him some money, but it probably cost him more than uh, I made him. But uh, it was a good relationship. Alan, why and you, Justin? And why did you keep showing up in Kingston? Well, let me tell you uh, a little bit of the backstory. I had showed up uh, at the rink in Kingston and uh, because I was so new in the business and so eager, uh, I was showing up an hour before puck drop. And there was an older gentleman in a red <laughs> sport jacket uh, who was an usher, basically a ticket, ticket taker at the door. And uh, I come through the door and he, you know, I'm the only one in the rink. And I'm wearing a suit, um, as Justin pointed out, with cowboy boots. And uh, we start having a discussion. He's asking me who I am. And I said, you know, I'm a you know new agent on the scene, just getting started. He's like, you have any clients? I said, no, not really. And uh, his name, I'll never forget, his name was Elwood. And uh, we had talked for about 15, 20 minutes. And he was telling me about, you know, growing up playing hockey in Kingston. He's lived in Kingston his whole life, how he's been a fan of junior hockey his whole life, that he's retired. He was a grandfather. And this was just a little part-time job that allowed him to get out of the house and, and you know, make a little bit of money. And he got to watch the game for free. And, uh, and he said to me, uh, hey, do you see those two people over there? And I said, yeah, they're the only other two people standing there. <laughs> he said, uh, that's Justin Davis's mom and dad. He's a really good new player on the team. He's a rookie. Let me go over and introduce you. So Elwood kind of drags me over to meet Justin's mom and dad. And and that's how the and, and the mom and dad and I, we had a you know half hour discussion before the start of the game. And it was right at the end of our discussion, Justin's dad said, you know, Justin, um, after the game, it'd be great if you could just meet him to say hello. He'd, he'd really enjoy that. So I guess things weren't going very well with your current agent at the time. And uh, and that's when you and I met for the first time after that first uh, game that I was at. It's, it's funny to hear the background, right? Like uh, when you go through a career and you go through everything, like, just the random people that are in the oh, yeah. right places at right times. And that's part of writing the book is just, <laughs> you start to realize what happened and yeah. Who would have thought an usher in the red jacket. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's a great story. Yeah. And, and, and I guess, you know, when you guys first meet, what's the, what's the first impression between the two of you? Do you remember Justin? You remember Alan for the first time? Yeah. It's just, I think so much stuff is scripted in hockey. Like the, the same sales pitch. And, and I currently volunteer with uh, the Guelph Storm. 
Right. And I'll go stand in the lobby after the game just to talk to a couple of the kids. I have a great relationship with them. And uh, I see the same agents there doing the exact same things from when I played. And I'm like, these people are like, they're wearing the same stuff. They're having the same conversations. So there's something about Alan that's just different. And I think even when you see the work that you do with your NHL guys, it's just something that stood out different. And that was refreshing to me. And I was a little bit of an outsider and a little different as well. Alan, what was your first impression of Justin when you met him? Well, I was sort of cautioned by Justin's mom and dad that he was uh, very quiet and didn't talk much and might be a little bit shy. And when Justin came out of the dressing room and came over to mom and dad, uh, they spoke to him a little bit. And then he walked over to me and we had a really engaging you know, 10 minute conversation. And uh, I didn't find you in our first, first discussion shy <laughs> or uh, quiet at all. I thought that you were uh, very well spoken and very poised for a young man who had, you know, just left home living in billets and starting off um, a career in the OHL that you probably didn't know several months before that that was the route you were going to take. So it was a really, um, I, I, I remember the conversation very well because I hadn't had that many with players before that. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember um, I, I drove from Kingston off to Toronto and then um, uh, to Niagara Falls. And I was making my way back. I stopped in Oshawa and Belleville along the way. And then I, rolled back into Kingston again. And that was the first time that we really got together. We went out for dinner yeah. and, uh, and sat down together and had a chance to spend maybe hour, hour and a half <laughs> talking about, you know, your dreams, your goals. Um, me talking a little bit about um, how I saw the agent business, a little bit of my philosophy as I was in the process really of shaping it. Because um, again, I was just starting out. And and the other thing that I'll I'll never forget about Justin is I I really didn't have I had no track record I had no client list I really had nothing except um, my ability to look Justin and his family in the eyes and tell them that if we started working together I don't have any experience and I was very upfront about it. Mm -hmm but nobody will work harder for them than I will. And they believed in me and they trusted me. And for the next couple of years, uh, through a lot of trials and tribulations, good times and bad times, we were there together and we were very much a family, all of us together. The book is called Conflicted Scars, An Average Player's Journey to the NHL, obviously by Justin Davis. Now you can available, it's available for pre-order. It's out October 18th. Um, you know, Justin, I, it sounds like this book sort of dovetails perfectly with, with you and Alan's first meeting, right? You talk about your time with the Frontenacs and I know that there was the Sioux Greyhounds in there as well and some other things. So, um, you know, at this time, obviously, and it, th this book is completely based on some of the events that happened then. And I guess, you know, there are some things happening in the news cycle right now. We were talking about this before the show that have caused us as Canadians and as as people who like hockey and I'm I'm saying Canadian but you know 40 50% of the people that are going to hear this show are American right um people are hockey fans and we're 
we're putting hockey culture under the microscope right now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this book and the places that it goes because it examines just that? Hmm. Hey, interesting. A lot of different directions. Yeah. Hey, first of all, before I get into that, I, I laugh. My dad used to laugh. Uh, used to leave a game if I was terrible after <laughs> after the first or second period. So if he stayed after the game and you watched me, that meant I probably played a pretty good game when you saw me. <laughs> uh, uh, people ask, it's funny, a couple of questions I got today was what is hockey culture, first of all? And, yeah. and it's interesting. I don't have like the exact definition, but I think when you start playing at five or six, the best way I can describe it is it's just a way that you act. You're taught a way to act. You're taught a way to dress. You're taught a way to kind of conform. When I when I think of hockey players, I think it's it's not the name on the back of the jersey. It's the name on your front of the jersey, and everybody conforms. Whereas these other sports, you're celebrated for being a personality, and mm-hmm. you're celebrated for being something different. So hockey culture is you're just taught this is how you act, and this is the way you are, all the way from AAA hockey to junior C to junior B in the OHL. And it's not until you leave the game. I think that you realize that some of the things I did or the way I act isn't right. And we used to refer to people that didn't play hockey as civilians. So <laughs> I, I went to a dinner party last night. There's two civilians and, uh, and so-and-so over there. So you used to think the civilians were the different ones, but then you, I'm a high school teacher and you, you go to work and you tell a story or uh, you say something, everybody's looking at you wide-eyed or you, you tell a story that you think is your 53rd best story and they're looking at you like that's the greatest story they've ever heard. <laughs> and that's hockey culture. It's just, you really don't know you're immersed in it, but it's, you're just, you become used to it. And when I look at these guys that uh, play in the NHL and then they got hired in scouting roles and general manager roles and the culture and stuff we deal with is people don't really understand that it's wrong mm-hmm. because they've always been in it. <laughs> and right. it, it took me five, 10 years. Like I started writing this three years ago before all this happened. And I was 10 years removed from the game. And it's only then that I started to realize that the way that I was, the way that I talked, the way I acted, it wasn't right. But you just become immersed. I, I hesitate to use the word cult, but it's kind of like that where you break free and you get out. And so I guess to answer part of your question with the book is I was just examining what that hockey culture was. And I don't think it's till now that I really realized uh what it is what i want to ask justin is what motivated you to want to sit down and write this book where did that come from it's a great question so a long-winded again but uh i was off work i had uh, two herniated discs in my back and i had sciatica in my leg couldn't feel my leg and i was bedridden for like three or four weeks and uh i was having post-concussion issues memory issues and um Someone, a random person at work who I'd never expect to do it, sent me a book and it was the uh, Ken Dryden Game Changer with Steve Monador. And I knew Steve Monador. I played against him. I'd hung out with him a couple of times in the summer. Uh, my roommate in Washington was friends with him. Guys I'm good friends with now are friends with him. And I was just reading the book and it just, I was like, man, I see parts of myself in this. And I was like, I, I closed it and I was like, hockey maybe didn't kill him, but man, did it contribute mm-hmm. to the things that happened. And then I yeah. started to think about things that happened to me. And I was having, like I said, memory issues. I was driving to a store and I pull over and like, where am I going? What am I doing? Headaches. And here I am on short-term disability. And I said, you know what? I'm going to write a memoir to my kids in 10, 15 years. If something happens to me, I started reading about CTE and these, what was happening so 
former athletes and I'll write a memoir, put it in a drawer and then, and they can read it. And uh, it started out with the funny stories. I thought my career was hilarious. All these funny stories and all these great things happened to me. But then when I started writing, I was like, wait a second, did this happen? And I'd go to a wedding with somebody and I'd say, hey, did this really happen when we were here? And people were confirming some of the things I remembered. I got in touch with Al and said, I'm writing a book. And I was like, this stuff in the Sioux, this is how I remember it. Did it happen this way? And he's like, absolutely. So long-winded answer, but this was never intended to get to this point. And people are like, oh, you're out to get Hockey Canada. You're out to, uh, to get hockey. I'm not interested in the civil lawsuit. I'm not interested in making money. This is, this. I wrote this three years ago before everything hit the fan. This was just to tell my story. And now I'm, I don't know if a reluctant participant, <laughs> but I'm in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, and it's got to be tough. And, and and Alan, maybe you can speak to this a little bit too, because you talk about, right, I mean, in your, in the way you framed what hockey culture can be, um, not always, but what it what it is, what it can be through the higher levels. Um, it's got to be hard to swim against that current. It feels there's got to be a feeling of, because the team is sacred, because you must do what the, you, you that must stay with you even into your 40s, right? Where you're kind of, that's the way you were, indoctrinated when you were young. I've been so hesitant with this coming out and anxious. Like this has been two years waiting for it to come out and you protect the game, right? What's said in the room stays in the room. And that's what you're always taught exactly to what you said. And and I started thinking like hockey, (laughs) hockey forgot about me (laughs) 15 years ago. No one in hockey was worried about, no one's there when I'm bedridden. No one's there helping me when I'm going to the concussion Institute right now to do uh, work with my vision and, and different things. So I'm like, who am I protecting? Like, I'm protecting people that never protected me in the first place. And I'm the average player. So, yeah, that I've been hesitant with that. But it's it's funny how many teammates have reached out and people have said, hey, I was reading that and like, go for it. And I was expecting people to say, like, what are you doing? But I would say 95% of former teammates and people that know me know why I'm doing it. And they're saying, write it. I've, I'm dealing with the same stuff. So it's been encouraging. And there's going to be people that get mad. But. I mean, <laughs> they take the time to get to know me and look into it. They know why I'm doing things and doing things for the right reason. Alan, when you when you deal when you have clients in it all the time, uh, young clients, clients who are you know just breaking in, or clients who don't want to rock the boat because they're young and they they want to make it so badly. You've seen that time and time and time again. Um, what? How is it that you instruct them? Because again. Uh, and we're going to get into some of the things that you talk about in the book here, Justin. But, but Alan, when we talk about breaking that hockey culture, right, swimming upstream, uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of room for it. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite to it because nobody wants to rock the boat in hockey. Nobody wants to come across as a, quote, problem. Am I, am I correct in that assumption? Sure. There, there's a code and there is a culture amongst the players uh, that very much leads to um, if you're suffering, you suffer in silence. If you receive some trauma along the way, deal with it quietly. Uh, don't ever talk about what you hear or see or what's happened to you inside the room because you you don't do that. And there are so many former players, former NHL players who went through junior hockey who are now in positions of NHL coaches, NHL general managers, 
who experienced all these things every step of the way up the ladder. And uh, I, I think there's there's a, a great fear when you hear about a revelation coming out regarding somebody and that person loses a job uh, and there's a scandal around it about something that happened 15, 20, 25 years ago, uh, people start thinking, hmm, that thing that happened that I was in the room 15 years ago, could that ever come back to haunt me? Mm -hmm. And I think that is part of the, the push from so many different quarters to keep these stories, Justin's stories, other players' stories, keep it out of books, keep it off podcasts, don't talk about it because it could lead people to start digging and people are very afraid of, of what's out there. And one of the things that you can, um, that anyone can um, really laud Justin for is his book is brutally honest. And even when he is disclosing things that he was involved in, it's just an honest memoir of what happened. And I think any parent with a young hockey player needs to read this book. It's a must-read book before you send your kid off to junior hockey to live a couple of hundred to five, six hundred kilometers away from home uh, with a family you don't know in a in a in a strange city. There's wonderful teams, wonderful coaches, wonderful GMs in the Canadian Junior League who care who take care of kids the right way. And there are some who don't care and are part of the problem. Hmm. And, uh, and, and people need guidance and direction uh, when it comes to hearing and advising and guiding what's best for them, you know, for the next step. And, and Justin, you know, talking about some of the hazing that went on, and I think it's a great segue into what I'd like to talk about next. You know, you talk about the hot box and your experience with the hot box in your book. Do you want to tell everybody what the hot box is and what happened to you? Sure. And before yeah. you do, I'm just going to ask you to lean a little closer yeah. to your mic because yeah, we want yeah. to get cozy here and yeah. I want to be able to hear you. So I think two things, Dad, before that, every time you say something, three things trigger. So uh, number one, when we talked about... Uh, what's said in the room stays in the room. I, I remember my editor said to me, you're you're talking about these people, but you're not mentioning anyone by name. It took me two seconds to Google these people and I know who you're talking about. And I realized there was still a fear of some of these people. And at the same time, I didn't want to name names. If people want to take the time to look who the people are then, but I'm not out to do that. But it was funny how underlying, I didn't really realize that you're still afraid, even though you're writing it to name some people. I'm 44 with three kids and a wife. Yeah. I don't want to say somebody's name. I think <laughs> the second thing too is when I wrote this with the hazing, I was looking back on it like 20, 25 years ago. And I'm like, well, I played junior C in 1993, 94. It's not still happening. And then the 
the Kyle Beach stuff came out and I'm like, hold on a second. Like this is 2014 mm-hmm. and this is still going on. And the Turnpenny report came out with the sh- with Sheldon Kennedy and they're talking about hazing and, and things going on in the CHL up to 2000, like from 2016. And so when you're talking about the hazing, I, I just assumed it was in the past, but the fact that the stuff is still going on, the fact in junior A hockey, uh, in the last year or two years ago, there was uh, two players suspended for 12 and six games for hazing. So it's still happening. So yeah. that's, that's to, to go to your last point too. I just, I wrote this, that talking about my past and it was brutal, but it's still going on. So then to go to the hot box, the hot box was, it's been a conflicted, I called the book Conflicted Scars because I'm still, I tell stories with laugh and the good times and I'm still conflicted. The hot box is basically as a rookie, you take off your clothes, you walk to the back of the bus, you tell a joke. If the veterans don't laugh, they put you in the bathroom. The people they hate the most, they go in first because they're in the longest. And then it goes uh, goes like that. The bus driver turns on the heat in the, in the bathroom and they close the door. And eventually, I don't know if we had five rookies, six rookies, seven rookies, and not there to nitpick it, but let's say there's six of us that were naked in the bus bathroom with the heat on. We left North Bay and we were on our way to Kingston. And people will debate the time and say it was only 20 minutes, it was 30 minutes, it was an hour, it was two hours, it was three hours. The point is, is <laughs> there were six or seven of us in a bathroom with the heat on, but it was normal. Like I knew about this in junior C, I played junior B. This was normal and it was a uh, the rite of passage and I almost felt great about myself when I came out. Like I endured this, I did this, generations have done this. I'm now a good rookie, I've gone along with it and you sit there and you don't think about it. So when all this hot box stuff come, came up, I was like, what are people complaining about? This is something that happened all the time. So I start writing this in a memoir. Then I think back when I'm writing it, I'm like, I think at one point when I'd take off my clothes, I was tying a skate lace around my junk. <laughs> like on the bus. And then I asked somebody and like, no, no, we had to do that. And you had to walk down the aisle and everybody has to yank on the skate lace as you go down. And the people that were, the people that got it the worst were always the worst actors. So it's mm. some, someone got them good. So I'm going to get somebody else good. And then there's some guys that didn't participate in it, like did the fake, like they did it and would just ignore it and, and go from there. So I started writing this and I'm like, did this happen? And people are like, yep, yep, it happened. And I was like, well, that it's abnormal, right? Mm-hmm. And then I started it, to it's think. So, it's so out of the pit. Like I I never played hockey to lie. I don't even know how someone comes up with a ritual like that. You well, know what I mean? Like for somebody yeah. on the outside like myself, I wouldn't even, that would never occur to me. But then it gets to the point. I start thinking, okay, who's on the bus? And I'm like, well, wait, there is three coaches. I'm a rookie. I'm sitting at the front of the bus. There's three coaches like six feet away from me. So then you start to think, well, number one, it happened to them 20, 25 years ago. So it's something that they're used to. Uh, And and it's normal to them. So like for me, if I had stayed in hockey, I would have thought that was normal and it keeps going. So when you talk about breaking the cycle and the rehabilitation of it, it's like, I don't, people find this weird, but I don't blame the coaches. I really don't because they thought it was normal. It was probably happening in 28, 29, 30 different like cities in the CHL. And it was, it was a badge of honor. And I really thought it was a badge of honor until three, four years ago. And then wasn't going to get into this, but like in the recent hockey Canada filings, there was someone on the record saying that 
if their kid played in the OHL right now, they went through it and they would have no problem with them doing it. It was fun. It was 15, 20 minutes. And it's okay because you're naked 30% of the time with your teammates anyway. So it's normal. And this is what you just sit there and you're thinking, how is this, how is this normal? And for me not to realize that it was abnormal until I started writing this mm-hmm. is shocking in itself. But it, yeah, it's, I hope I broke it down uh, correctly. It just, uh, you assume everybody knows about it, but never heard it of it. Yeah. But, but that's how badly parents and kids want to play in the NHL. And this is the avenue, a means to an end to get there. And it just goes to show you what they're willing to endure to get there. Yeah. And, and the goal of it too is, is they tie your clothes up, they throw them in a ball, they throw it in and say, if everybody gets dressed, then you guys can come out. But they know no one's going to do that. We crack the window open. They always say, if you crack a window open, but you know what? There are some guys, you know, that are always uncomfortable. We had a good leadership group and it's tough to say that, but again, it's so cyclical and people are so used to it that it, it just becomes normal. So good people let it happen. And the same thing happened to them. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. Well, at one time in, in your book, you said, and it actually had a great impact on me, the adults were supposed to be the responsible ones in the room, right? You're dealing with 17, 18-year-old kids for the most part. But what about the adults? They're the ones who are supposed to know better. Yeah, it's... Uh... But when you talk about toxic culture and you talk about a culture, like this has been going on since the 50s and 60s, right? And I said, every there aren't many coaches that were back then that did not play themselves or be or that weren't involved in it. And it's it it's the norm, and it's until you get rid of the norm. Now it was banned. My years won't be, but it obviously doesn't happen anymore. And and thank goodness. But there are just so many things. And I talked about hazing a little bit more and People are like, oh, it's not that bad. You only did those two or three. I left a lot out. I'm a high school teacher. I got to walk down the halls and I got to see people. I don't want my parents knowing the half of the stuff that happened. But there's a lot of us that played junior C hockey because it was a small town. And that was the worst of the hazing and, and junior B and the OHL. When I played junior C hockey, you had to do a push-up naked in a bathroom. And with your, again, your junk in a, in a cup of beer. And then you left the room. And then the next person had to chug a beer. And then you start to get back to the room and you realize what you've done is you've drank the beer that the last person in front of you did the push-up in. And then you're naked the whole time. People are shaving your body, your head's getting shaved. And it's just this, when you talk about sexuality and you talk about the culture, it's you're so broken down into thinking this is normal. So for someone on the record with Hockey Canada to say, we're naked together 30% of the time, I totally get where he's coming from because that's the, it's somehow just the culture. And when I look back on this, like, listen, I'm not saying it for a reaction or to go after people. I'm just saying this is what led me to the point where I was 18, 19, and I thought this stuff was normal. Yeah. Well, and what else are you supposed to think? Right. I, I don't know anything different than, like, Alan had a good point. It's probably, how many other sports do you move away when you're 15, 16, 17, and you move in with a a family you don't know? And even now, my son was 16 in his draft year last year, and... uh there's kids moving to the GTHL at 12, 13, 14 and living with families. And so it's a sport where kids move early and, 
so really you're leaving it like to come back to the point you're leaving it to the adults who are supposed to be the responsible ones in the room my parents were promised that these people would take care of me right right so why don't we talk a little bit about concussions and some of your experiences with concussions while you were playing junior hockey um first how many concussions do you think you had in your in your entire career <laughs> i'd say like between 12 14 15 concussions and i think the major ones every bump after you just felt that you just felt that little fuzziness so whether they're the minor ones and you find out after the fact dealing with uh concussion experts now that there really are no minor ones but uh after those major ones there was just times where uh where you protect yourself so to get into my first major one i remember we were playing uh barry was an expansion team at the time and uh, we were playing at the old dunlop street arena in barry and i got slew foot coming up the ice and for people that don't know what a slew foot is, is when someone kicks your feet out and pushes your chest backwards and usually you hit your head on the back of the ice and uh i just remember i just went it feels like deja vu when you have a concussion a really bad one everything goes gray everything slows down it just feels like the world's frozen. I remember getting back to the bench and uh, I started to throw up on the bench and we had a trainer at the time and we all talk about this, like the trainers at the time, they were not, they weren't trainers. No. They were they were equipment people, they were stick boys, they were trainers and remember the trainer at the doing time. doing it for 20, 30 years. Exactly. He kept his dentures, I remember in a cup in the dressing room and he was a hotel manager and so he comes down and says, hey, everything all right? And I'm like, oh no, I think I'm good. Well, I'm throwing up and the coach says, okay, I think, uh, I think you can go for the power play. So I went out for the power play and, uh, it's the first time in my career I can remember coming off and I had no idea what happened, just where I was, what I did on the ice. And I just came off and I said, I'm not right. So they said at the end of the period, we'll take you to the dressing room and, uh, and we'll have you evaluated. So the period I had to sit on the bench for five, six minutes, went to the dressing room and, uh, I saw a doctor, they said that, um, Oh, you've got a really bad concussion. So they said, because we only have a trainer, what we're going to have you do is just lay in your equipment in the shower. We're going to turn the lights off because it's not good to have lights when you have a concussion. And we're going to go out and play the third period and we'll come back. Because at that time we had one trainer, right? So you're by yourself? All by myself in the in dressing the room, in the shower, lights off, just laying there waiting for the game to end. So they come back in, the doctor reevaluates me and says, uh, yep, you got a bad concussion. So go home. Uh, have your billets wake you up three hours. Uh, if you've got a headache, take a Tylenol or take something like, and all things that you find out after the fact, they're just so far off. But we had one trainer. So his job was to take care of the guys on the ice. He couldn't take care of me and there wasn't a support staff. So I played the next weekend and I just think back of that and it just like horrifies me that I did that. But with all the recent concussion stuff that comes up, yeah, no one was there to tell me no. I wanted to play. I played my first game as a rookie because someone got injured in warm-up. Mm -hmm. I got a hat trick and I never came out of the lineup. So my thinking was, I don't want to come out of the lineup. I'm playing great. I will play. But there was no one there to protect me from myself. And I think if you right. talk to NHL guys, you talk to athletes, they're like, why did you play? Well, I thought I could go. But where's the adult, again, where's the adult in the room that says no? Where's the coach where I'm almost puking on his shoes? and knows I'm in the dressing room to say, oh, you can't play next weekend. So that was number one. And uh, yeah, that was a big one. And 
it still it makes me sick to think of hitting my head on the ice and I ever I watch someone get a concussion like I, I just get that feeling and it just it makes me sick and I, I, I can't watch it and, and what you said just now is so true when you think about it one of the things that happens when you have a concussion or what I like to describe it as a, a traumatic brain injury which is what a, what a concussion is a traumatic brain injury that person does not have the cognitive ability to make a rational judgment about whether they are good to play or not and that's why the decision on whether someone can go back into a game and when that person is cleared to go back and play games has to be left to doctors right not a player by himself saying, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good to go. Well, you don't get to make that decision. Not, you know, not with this kind of injury. And and that's took a great evolution in thinking to get it to the point where now there is um, hesitancy for the most part, uh, before allowing players who've had a traumatic brain injury to get back into action. Although look what's happened in the NFL in the last couple of weeks with Tua and and the fact that, you know, clearly we all have eyes. Mm -hmm. Clearly he exhibited all of the classic physical symptoms of a traumatic brain injury went back into the game and then next game had that violent hit with his head back down on the ground and now he's out indefinitely yeah and and to go with that like i was 16 so yeah. when you talk about this we're talking about two and we're talking to these nhl guys i was i was 16 years old like i watched right. my my son 16 he makes a bagel and forgets about it, almost burns the house down, right? <laughs> so, so like you're, you think of, did I have the rational decision-making to do it? Like, of course not. So fast forward then to like with the Tua stuff. So I'm playing in Sault Ste. Marie, we're playing Detroit. I make a pass and I make three steps up ice. And, and back then, late hits were, <laughs> you got two or three steps. Now you take that one step and it's late, they call it. And I don't remember anything else. My world blacked out. And my dad came down to the ice. He came down to the glass because he was there with my grandma. And uh, I was having the, I believe it's called fencing syndrome, where your hands are like two hours, hands were like this. And yeah. my my arms were out. I was having little seizures on the ice. And, it, and they took me off the ice uh, on a stretcher. And I didn't regain consciousness until I got to the dressing room. And I always remember... Smelling salts, the first time I came to, is it was Peter DeBoer. Uh, the NHL coach was uh, coaching the Detroit, uh, sorry, the Plymouth Whalers at the time. And he was standing over top of me. And it was the first face I saw. And he was just like, are you okay? And was actually like showing genuine concern. It was the other team's coach, right, that was in there. Not my own coach, the other team's coach uh, at the intermission. And uh, and I went through the testing and I, I was not in a good spot, obviously, going through all that. So I walked back to the dressing room in my equipment. So they took my skates off. I walked back with our trainer. 
And uh, the trainer at this time in the Sioux was the first qualified trainer I had. He had an actual <laughs> fanny pack. He had the towel. He looked like the part and he right. had had a degree. And I think he went to, I have always wanted to track down who it was. And I, I think he went to play, uh, to work in pro hockey, but he was great. But he took me over to the dressing room. I showered, felt terrible. And then I got on the bus. And when I look back, people are like, how did Tua get on the plane and fly? I look back and I'm like, why did I walk to the dressing room? Why did I shower? Why did I get my clothes on? If that happened today, watching junior hockey, you would have been on a stretcher. You would have been taken off. You would put in an ambulance and you would have gone to the hospital. But Straight I, to the hospital. Straight to the hospital. But I yeah. dressed myself and I went to the bus. I started throwing up all over the bus. Bathroom of the bus, just throwing up. I was not myself in and out, just kind of trying to figure out where I was. And one of the players yelled to the front. They said, uh, we need to, he's not right. The general manager traveled with the team and the staff that was there decided that they were going to get me to Canada. So they go to Canada and get a Canadian hospital. And you look back on it, and this is where I'll come in too, is to avoid the U.S. medical bills, right? Oh, they didn't want to pay. For Did you to not want to pay. Hospital. But the trainer came back and I look back on it and you think of times where someone could have saved my life because I was playing senior hockey about eight years ago and someone had the same thing, hit their head on the ice, bleeding on their brain and passed away. Uh -huh. So the trainer said, go to the hospital. So we pulled in the hospital. They didn't want to wait for me, right? <laughs> they did not want to wait because it was the playoffs and they had a big game coming up. So they dropped me off. They rushed me to, uh, to get a CT scan and they found bleeding on the brain mm -hmm. and they rushed me to ICU and I sucked up to IV and and given my own space. And I spent three three days in ICU. The team left, my mom drove down and spent three days with me in the hospital. And I just look back on it I'm like, nobody stayed, nobody cared. They tried to sneak me to the, to the States. I say sneak, they tried to get me to the States so that they wouldn't have to pay the bill. And I go back, I skate a little bit at the end of the season. Thank God I look back on it. We got beat out. We got upset in the second round by the by the Guelph Storm. We had a great team. We had Joe Thornton and future NHLers, but we got upset and I didn't play. And I'm like, thank goodness mm -hmm. I didn't play. But this is where you come in, Alan, where I'm out of it. Don't really know what's going on, but my parents receive a, a medical bill for, a, was it $15,000, $10,000? Somewhere in that vicinity. dollars plus. And, and my mom's in a panic. My parents didn't have a lot of money at the time. And they're like, how are we going to pay this bill? And I, I'm like, what do you mean pay the bill? They can pay the bill. And uh, the team basically was telling her they had to pay the bill. The same time, Alan, because he's on everything right away, is calling the team saying, what are you doing sending this bill? And you can correct me where I'm wrong. And they're telling Alan, oh, no, no, no. We're going to pay the bill. I don't know what happened. And and uh, you want to fill in from there on this one? Uh, yeah, they, they initially didn't say they were going to pay the bill. Yeah. They initially said they're only responsible for medical expenses that occur within Canada. And uh, hockey-related injury that occurs in the league outside Canada, well, the family is responsible for that. That was the first interaction I had with the general manager over this injury, uh, to which I lost my collective mind. <laughs> and and after a long series of expletives, 
and threatening his life and that of everybody else associated with him. Uh, he then told me that, okay, okay, we'll find a way to pay it. But then he called Justin's mom and said, again, we're not paying the bill. I don't care what your agent says, and we're just not going to pay. And there was a battle that went on for several days before, you know, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to send all of this to the media and let the media know how you're treating one of your own players and, and see if the people running the OHL and the people in the media, uh, are going to uh, approve of one of your own players in ICU from a uh, horrible traumatic brain injury on the ice that resulted in a brain bleed, and you're effectively washing your hands of the player and any responsibility you have for the player. And ultimately, he agreed uh, very reluctantly to take care of the bill. And to go with that, and that's the initial plan was, let's get him to Canada, let's get him to Canada. But meanwhile, I'm throwing up over the bus and the trainer is the one that said, we're getting him to a hospital. I'm not having this on my, like on my watch. And it comes back to the book. Why did you write the book? And I say an average player's journey. Like I, like I'd been drafted the NHL. I was a normal player, but they had no problem treating me that way. I played with Joe Thornton and Richard Jackman that year, who were two high-profile NHL guys, and that would never happen to them. They would, have, they would have been two guys staying in the room with them, and they would have paid that bill. And that was the first time I understood really there was the, a hierarchy, the hierarchy of it all. And that's that's what I'm trying to tell parents when I when I talk about this. There's very few Sidney Crosby's, Connor McDavid's, and uh, high-profile players in the NHL. It's the average guys that maybe don't make the NHL that are dealing with a lot of this, a lot of these issues. So I thought I'd be the spokesperson and <laughs> I never forgot it. I never, and, and maybe fast forwarding on it, but we were playing in the Memorial Cup and I remember watching, I was out, I watched the ownership group and the GM, I guess were visiting to watch the Memorial Cup. And I was making my way over and it's the first time my brother made a rational decision in his life and said, <laughs> said just leave it alone, like you've won. But it's, it's uh, I'll never forget. I can't remember my kids' birthdays sometimes, but I can remember the name of every person that was involved in that. Yeah. Yeah. And now let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, about the time that you got arrested and what <laughs> happened there. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. And it's funny when, when you write this, you have, uh, I by no means am innocent. I'm not pleading that I was this innocent person that, did everything correctly and I treated everybody correctly and I've never been involved in any incidents. That's not it at all. And it's like when you're running for politics, you're afraid what people are going to dig up, but I, I know who I was and I know what I did. So uh, I lived in the bottom of a house. I had the best billet situation. I had the greatest billets ever. We had an apartment. I had my own door. I had my own kitchen down there. I didn't really cook anything, but I had my own kitchen and uh, they were the greatest people. So people, guys from the team would come over all the time and just stop in. So we had a paintball team event <laughs> scheduled for the Wednesday. So one guy, when we were playing, I believe in Windsor, borrowed his buddy's paintball gun. It was like a $200 gun and it was it was amazing and he wanted it for the event. So they stopped in to my apartment. So it really wasn't my fault. They stopped in first. 
and he had the paintball gun and he said uh we were just sitting around and doing nothing he said why don't we just drive around and we'll shoot at a pole or something as we're driving in the back of a pickup oh, truck no. and when you think of if you think of junior hockey the boredom is you go to practice you come home and like there's a lot of time to kill yes and you've got 11 o'clock curfew so you got to get everything done by 11. so i said sure let's do that so two of us sat in the back of the the bed of the pickup truck and the other two <laughs> were in the front so we're driving and then they were shooting at they shot at a pole and they shot at a sign and everything was normal and then the longer it went there'd be someone jogging down the street and they'd <sighs> shoot 20 feet behind no at no time and i still say this was there any intention or did anyone get hit but they thought they'd shoot behind and then you don't think <laughs> this looks like a gun and you're driving around town so anyways they shoot 10 feet behind uh a, a guy on a bike and we keep driving and then i realized the guy on the bike was actually a police officer on, oh. on a bike and looking back on it not a good decision to do everything but <laughs> So we drive into a subdivision, we go left, we go right, we go left, we go right, we go straight, roundabout, and put the gun under a tree. We go back to my billet's house and we stay there and we say, okay, everything's good, but we're getting paid $47 a week. Right. So we decide that gun is worth $200. Do we want to split the 50 bucks or do we just want to go back in a different car and get the gun? Oh. So we go back in my uh, 1984 Ford Tempo. We drive... Uh, <laughs> We drive and we find the exact, because this tree was humongous. I just remember the tree. And we were looking under the tree. We can't find it. And then the neighborhood just turns into oh. lights just flashing and the whole neighborhood lights up. So the one guy in the team gets out of the car, takes his shirt off, and then starts sprinting down the street. The guy beside me gets out and he jumps into the hedges. And I don't know what to do because I'm in the driver's seat. So I just get my... <laughs> I get the seat and I just do one of these backwards <laughs> and I recline in the seat thinking the police officer will never check the car. So he knocks on the window and he says, you there, come here, you here, come here, you put your seat up and come out. So he said, were you the guys driving around with the paintball gun? And we said, yeah. And he said, uh, tell you what, just follow me to the station. Nothing's going to happen, but we need to talk about it. So I said, okay, sure. No problem. We'll go. So we pull in, walk into the station and, uh, Everything's good. Everything's good. And then this guy walks in in short biker shorts and a shirt. And he says, are you the guys that were shooting guns? I've been chasing you guys for an hour or two hours. And one of the guys says, you were chasing us on a bicycle? <laughs> and then they call us in. They say, you here, you here, you here. Oh. So that's when things elevated. And bottom line is they said nothing was going to happen. You guys are all right. Nothing. No one got hit. It was fine. Just whatever. Just be careful. So go to bed next morning I wake up and I always listen even to this day I have an old school like one of those Viking clock radios mm -hmm. and uh the alarm goes off and I hear four Kingston Frontenacs charged with assault with a deadly weapon oh. and I realize that someone from the Kingston Whig standard every night comes in and goes through all the stuff and goes through all the files and they found that so I, <laughs> I've never woken up so quickly and uh, I go upstairs and my billets always made me chocolate chip muffins every morning. <laughs> and the newspaper was there and I'd read the paper and there's no paper. And I'm like, well, I said, uh, where's the paper? And like, oh, we didn't get it today. It didn't come today. And so I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. And long story short, we were on the front page of the paper and went to school and I just waited, just waited for the call. You're going to the rink. So the call came and said, you need to go to the rink. And uh, 
Uh, I remember it was the coach GM and the owner at the time, his name was Ren Blair. And he was just this old, old hockey guy. And he discovered Bobby Orr. Okay. He was the guy yeah. that discovered Bobby Orr and Perry Sound. And he's the guy that signed Bobby Orr yeah. to a C form. Okay. Which at the time there was no draft. So you would sign a, a prospect uh, to a C form for a hundred dollars. Wow. And uh, Ren Blair was a Bruins scout who discovered Bobby Orr and got him to sign a C form, uh, laying claim onto his NHL rights for a hundred dollars. Wow. So, so Ren comes in the room and he's this legend. We've never met him. And then he just goes on this 40 minute story of his dad giving him a crystal ball and they shined it and they shined it. And he's, the story is going exactly. I'm talking. We have no idea what he's talking about. So I looked at the guy next to me. I'm like, I honestly just make it end. We'll go yeah. to, we'll go to jail. We got to make, <laughs> yeah. we got to make this end. So he finishes. And then the coach GM basically says, you guys are in trouble and you need to get a lawyer. And we got a lawyer and, uh, and they made a deal that if you signed an NHL contract, that you would pay, that you would have to pay this fine. If you didn't sign an NHL contract, then you wouldn't have to pay him the money. So he did that and uh, and he was great. So I saved money by not signing an NHL contract right now. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward, like we were, so we were charged and basically we were found, like everything was good. Charges were dropped, everything was gone. And, uh, but they wanted to look, good and they wanted to make us pay the price so they gave us 200 community service hours and we had that the deal with the fine and then the team said you know what we're going to match the 200 community service hours so we're going to give them 400 hours well we have three hours a day where we're not on the ice we're not in school so i'd finish practice and i'd go to a blood donor clinic and i'd be serving cookies at the blood donor clinic and i hate needles and i'd just be trying not to look at the people we'd go to a a bingo at eight at night and you remember bingos back then with the smoke and I mean, the first night I had the bib on and some ladies like, I'll get a jackpot, a super jackpot, a super duper jackpot. And you're trying to hand these things out. And my, my, my pot was, I was short 50 bucks at the end of the night oh. because I screwed up how things were. So I'm like, I just got banned from my community service that I'm doing for this. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was a long, long year and you were there with the process and it was Do you awful. remember calling me? Oh. Do you remember calling me to tell me you'd been arrested? Oh, and you don't even know how to start. The, try like, telling your parents. And I think you and my dad were the ones who were like, what were you thinking? And my mom <laughs> was the only one that paused and said, like she always did, what can we do? And she didn't even ask <laughs> what I had done, but she said, what can I do? And uh, yeah, it's idle time. Too many guys, whatever. And thank God, like we... Thank God we didn't do any damage and and nothing happened, but it's just, it's these stories. But back then, the hockey news was the be all end all. Like every right. guy in the bus had the hockey news, you'd read it and the Associated Press picked it up. The hockey news put it in. So oh. every rink you went into, like you line up for a face off in front of the other team's bench and you're like, oh, don't say anything, don't say anything. They'd be like, why don't you hit them with your paintball gun? The whole bench <laughs> would laugh. And I, I still laugh because I'd be six years after the fact playing pro hockey and Germany and there'd be a Canadian guy and the other team would be like make a paintball joke and I was like this is this is still going on we were uh it was a pretty big event in, in junior hockey back then wow well around around that time after the incident uh you were touring uh a prison yeah and uh an inmate in the prison had a message for you 
Uh, do you remember what that was? Yeah, we did the Kingston Pen. We had a player doing the Kingston Pen tour, and one of the we're walking, and they used to play our games back then on radio on Friday nights. It was something that just for the inmates to listen to. And uh, one of the guys yelled, I won't say the names of the other people, but they basically told us they'll see us soon. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and, uh, and uh, it's something I'll never forget. And I came out of there after 30 minutes. I'm like, oh, please, I'm, I'm fragile. I wouldn't last more than, than three minutes in here. But uh, yeah, it was the timing was impeccable. Wow. Yeah. So this yeah. is going to be a heck of a book. And Alan's already read it twice. It's not yeah. fair. He got a head start. Yeah. <laughs> but Conflicted Scars, an average player's journey to the NHL with Justin Davis. Uh, it's available, like I said, uh, October 18th, 2022. That'll be this year. But the pre-order is available now and you can get it to uh, uh, ECW Press. Um, can you tell us a little bit before we kind of wrap it up about your time in Ottawa as well? Because I know it was transformative for you. Yeah, I things didn't work out in the Sioux and I got traded to Ottawa and I, I remember Brian Kilray told Alan actually he just said every time we played them he seemed to score so I'm happy to have him on my team <laughs> and uh I, I can't say enough about him there's so many things that are going to come out of this about hockey culture and the bad things in hockey and Brian Kilray saved my life I was in a dark dark place uh with depression and just wondering if I wanted to, to keep going and I remember when I got traded there, him and his wife, Judy, actually took me home from practice and I stayed in his house. And I sat down with dinner with Judy and Brian Kilray. He talked to me, asked questions about my family. He took me downstairs to his chair where he watches hockey. And uh, and he said, watch the game. There's a fridge here if you want anything to drink. This is your room. Go ahead and do that. And I, I felt human for the first time, like a human. And he cared and he had good things to say about me. And uh, I'll always forget, he had a rotary phone the phones that just went around and I had a calling card and I was trying to put in my, my number. It's like a 10 digit number, right? And every number <laughs> felt like it was zero or it was just going around. And then finally I was just like, forget it. I'm just going to call on his phone long distance. And uh, yeah, just a, just a great man. And that was just the start of the journey with him. And, and I mean, like you said, and, and Alan, you kind of mentioned this before too. There is so much in this book, right? We're talking about, we, we've gone, we've talked about the culture. We've talked about the concussions. We talked about it, but there's so much more to this that people are going to grab because again, it's, there's good and bad here, right? Ex exactly. And that's why I call it conflicted scars because that was the time of my life. We won a Memorial Cup, had the best time of my life. And uh, with him, I, I talk about in the book, they used to healthy scratch you, which means you wouldn't play in a game and they wouldn't tell you. So you'd get on a bus in Kingston, you'd bust to Windsor, you'd be walking off the bus and they'd say, hey, you're not playing tonight. Oh. And you'd have family and we'd, that was before you could text. With Brian, you knew right away what was happening. If you weren't playing, he would tell you. He would yell at you. It was so loud, the whole arena would hear. And when he came in in between periods, if you made a bad pass, you just put your head down. You're like, oh, please don't look at me. Please don't look at me. And he'd find you and he'd light you up. But then the game would end and you'd be walking out and be like, he'd say, I saw your parents here tonight. Here's 20 bucks. Take them out for dinner. Uh, you did a really good job in the third period. So you knew where you stood before you went to bed. You knew where you stood before you left and he treated you like a human. You knew he'd yell at you and he'd coach you hard. But at the same time, he knew like that you had feelings and he knew what it was like. He was in junior hockey for 30, 40 years. You'd have some coaches would sit you the whole third period, healthy scratch you. You'd take a bus home. No one would talk to you. You'd be in a, another jersey on the fifth line the next day at practice. They wouldn't talk to you. And your mind would just race and race and race and race. But 
Brian was up front and uh, my mental health was obviously because of him just made a turn and I, I love talking again. Justin, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you, man. Like yeah, it's, right away, he's one of the warmest people uh, that you could meet, right? I'm not, it's funny, I, as, I, as I begin to meet people in Alan's circle, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing they all have that sort of quality where there's like a warmth and uh, I, I, I was driving down my street, Alan, just to, just to and I was picking up some Starbucks <laughs> for us and uh, I looked in and I saw him in the truck and he looked at me and I thought, okay, that's gotta be him. Got out and shook my hand and come on, let's go. And, it's, and it, like literally he's walking into a stranger's house, right? <laughs> so Justin, you're, you're a real pleasure. Um, good luck with the book. And, uh, and obviously, you know, it's, it's been great having you on. It's been fantastic to meet you. Perfect. I appreciate you taking the time. This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's sportsbook. Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN. 